Well, good afternoon and welcome to St Paul's Cathedral and to this Sunday Forum. My name is Jonathan, I'm the Canon Treasurer here, uh, and I have the great privilege of introducing our speaker uh, for today, the Reverend Dr Calvin Samuel. Uh, Calvin is a Methodist minister and theologian. Uh, he was formerly principal of the London School of Theology, Dean of St John's College in Durham, and Director of Ministry of the Wesley Centre, and I understand is, is imminently taking up uh, a new role. Calvin is passionate about discovering biblical doctrines of holiness, and his latest book, More Distinct, explores what holiness means today. He argues that holiness, far from being uh, about a holier-than-thou stereotype, should be the most attractive thing in the world. And he explores how we can reclaim holiness as a force for good, with the power to transform not only us uh, as individuals, uh, but also our world, the societies, the communities of which we're a part. Calvin will speak for about 40 minutes or so, and then we'll have some time for questions, and we'll finish promptly at 2 p.m. A colleague from our shop will join us uh, at the end of our session together with some copies uh, of Calvin's book. You can see them already here to sell, I think at a discount, and Calvin has kindly said that he'll sign uh, any copies if you would like to purchase them. So would you please welcome Dr. Calvin Samuel. Thank you very much. Shall we begin with a prayer? Let's pray. Loving God, thank you for this opportunity to gather, to think, to learn, and hopefully to grow by your spirit. Direct our thinking and our conversation, we pray, in the name of Christ. Amen. Thank you so much for being with us today. I grew up in Antigua, in the Caribbean, and I was nurtured in a wonderful church that was very keen on holiness. Holiness was emphasized, it was preached, it was taught, it was modeled, it was pursued. But it was not very gracious. Instead, I experienced it as judgmental and legalistic. And as a result, I don't remember precisely what I was taught about holiness, but I do know what I learned. And what I learned was this. Holiness is a long list of rules and things that you do not do. I wonder how many of us share a similar experience. Anybody? So I grew up, therefore, viewing holiness a bit like spoons full of cod liver oil that my parents made us drink each day as a tonic for good health. I have no doubt that cod liver oil was good for us, but if you've ever tasted it, you know well it tastes vile. Now, if you are from a family where your parents provided more enlightened ways of ensuring that you got all of your vitamins and minerals, then be grateful. Be very grateful indeed. And if you have no idea what cod liver oil is, just think it through. Oil made from the liver of a cod. <laughs> That's not going to go well. It's pretty horrible tasting stuff. In one of my favorite scenes in The Lion King, and if you've seen it, you might recall, Two hyenas are talking about the king of the jungle, Mufasa. For one of the hyenas, every time the name Mufasa is mentioned, it sends a shiver down her spine. And for many people, including myself, holiness has become something of a Mufasa word. Every time you hear it, it sends a little bit of a shiver down our spine. 
That's because holiness has an image problem. In many quarters, it's a word which elicits negative connotations and legalistic impressions. When we think of holiness, we too often think also of holier-than-thou or judgmental attitudes. And therefore, holiness is not always viewed as a liberating idea. And so today I'm really thinking about the idea of holiness as distinctly problematic, but also distinctly precious. It's problematic because talk of holiness can easily make us feel inadequate, because we are reminded of how far we have fallen short. And there is something very wrong with that picture. And what's wrong with that picture is simply this, that we don't really understand what holiness is or what it's about. So what is holiness? The best description of holiness that I've discovered comes from an incredible woman called Ruth Etchells. Ruth Etchells was a former principal of St. John's College in Durham University. She's the only woman to have held this role in the college's 100-year history. But here's the other beautiful nugget. She was principal of a theological college, an Anglican theological college, when women were not yet allowed to be priests. So think that through, really quite a remarkable woman. And she describes holiness in this way. Holiness is actually the shining dazzle of profoundest divine love, exchanged continually within the Trinity and poured out for creation in all its forms for our deepest and most joyful good. I'd like to say that again, and you do have it in the handouts that were given earlier. Holiness is actually the shining dazzle of profoundest divine love, exchanged continually within the Trinity and poured out for creation in all its forms for our deepest and most joyful good. Three things strike me here. First, that idea of holiness as a shining dazzle. I think too few of us are inclined to think of holiness as shiny. Most of us think of holiness as hard work, doer, sober, serious. But Ruth reminds us that holiness is a shining dazzle. It's meant to be attractive, like the burning bush of Exodus chapter 3 that draws Moses closer. Holiness is a pillar of fire, declaring the glory and majesty of God. Second, the idea that holiness is rooted in divine love. This not only reminds us that holiness and love are necessarily linked, but it also reminds us that holiness is core to God's very being, and we'll come to that later on. So if holiness is rooted in divine love, and if it is true that God is love, then whenever we talk about holiness, we are in fact trying to describe that which is the very heart of God. No wonder we struggle to talk about holiness, because we are trying to describe something that is ultimately indescribable. Third, holiness is rooted in divine love. Hear this again. Holiness is divine love poured out on creation for our deepest and most joyful good. Who is it that's doing the pouring out? It's God. And why is that love poured out? For our deepest and most joyful good. Holiness is rooted in the gracious action of God. And it is for our deepest and most joyful good. I don't know about you, but I find that liberating. Liberating to discover that holiness is not primarily a list of rules or things that we don't do. 
But ultimately, holiness or sanctification, another fancy word to say the same thing, is not so much about what we do or don't do. It's rather more about what God does, and indeed what God has already done in Jesus Christ and by his Spirit. For holiness is the product of God's grace. We are saved by grace, and we are sanctified by grace. Be liberated by that truth. We will never become holy because we work hard at it. We will never become holy because we keep the rules. We can only become holy because God has poured out divine love on creation for our deepest and most joyful good. Holiness, therefore, is the shining glory of God. And we are holy only when we reflect something of God's goodness and God's glory in the world. Put another way, holiness is not so much about sinless perfection. It's much more about Christ-like reflection. Let me say that again. Holiness is not so much about sinless perfection as it is about a Christ-like reflection. But more than that, holiness is for our deepest and most joyful good. Now that's a real challenge to people like me who grew up thinking of holiness as something like cod liver oil. It might be good for you, but there's no way you're going to enjoy it. But if it is true that holiness is for our deepest and most joyful good, it's not like cod liver oil at all. It's much more like cowpaw. When our children were younger, and they are now 21 and 19, so this is a little while back, but if one of them was ill and cowpaw was being dispensed, the other one would feign illness in order to get some cowpaw because the makers of cowpaw figured out put the spoonful of sugar in the medicine it'll go straight down it seems to me that is what holiness is meant to be like that it's good for you but it's also something that will taste good on the way down and so our children worked this out their basic approach to life could be summed up in that old proverb What's good for the sick is better for the well. If holiness is like cowpaw rather than cod liver oil, our children modeled something that I've later come to recognize as deeply true, that the path to human wholeness is by means of God's holiness. The path to human wholeness is by means of God's holiness. And that's what it means for holiness to be for our deepest and most joyful good. Because holiness properly understood is to reflect the very nature of God. It's to reflect God's love, justice, creativity, integrity, grace, forgiveness, generosity, and flourishing. And so often the church is unattractive because that is not in fact what we look like. I don't know if you are regular churchgoers. I'm about to be installed as the minister of two churches tonight in Southend. But the churches I've been part of have not always reflected God's love and justice and creativity and integrity and grace and forgiveness and generosity and flourishing. My suspicion is if the church looked more like that, our congregations might be a little less empty, might they not? 
And so often the church is unattractive because the vision of the world that the church articulates is not a world in which people really are desperate to live in. So I'm saying that holiness is not primarily about prohibited behavior. It is rather primarily about positive action. And indeed, holiness is primarily about transformation. And transformation is only truly valuable to the church if it is also conformation to the image of Christ and to the mission of God. Therefore, to pursue holiness is to acknowledge that all is not well, all is not right amongst individuals, communities, and our world. And if we doubt that for a moment, simply turn on the television or go outside for a moment. We are not living in a world or in a country at the moment where everything is well. We are deeply divided at the moment, aren't we? To pursue holiness is to acknowledge a need to be transformed in the power of the Spirit and to be conformed to the image of Christ. And in so many ways, this is an obvious point, of course. Holiness is transformational. But here's the thing. There are so many of us who don't really want to be transformed. One of my favorite passages is Isaiah chapter 6, where the prophet catches a glimpse of God. He is granted a glimpse into the holy of holies. He sees seraphim declaring, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And as he catches a glimpse of that, he gains a sense of perspective. And what he says in response is not words of worship, how wonderful God is. What he says, in fact, is, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Catching sight of who God really is enables us to see, sometimes for the first time, who we really are. And as you probably know, sometimes seeing who we really are is not always a positive thing, or at least a pleasant thing. But it is only in the light and the revelation and the holiness of God that we are able to see the world as God sees it and the way that we should see it. Only then can we see ourselves as God sees us. Only then can we discover whether our priorities are right. Only then can we see our need for transformation. I'm at the age now where visiting the opticians is a regular thing. And you know how it is when you go and they pop in different lenses. And when they get to the right one, suddenly the world comes into focus and you think, oh my goodness, is that really what it is? That's what holiness is meant to be for us. That by seeing who God is, we're then suddenly able to see what the world is like and to see what we are right, what we are like. For you see, holiness is transformational. But not only is it transformational, it is also inherently missional. For if holiness is divine love poured out on creation, holiness becomes a powerful witness to the love of God and the power of the gospel to transform communities. I want to suggest when we get it right, when we understand holiness as positive action, holiness becomes deeply and powerfully attractive. But there are so many of us who know from experience. It is also true that when we get it wrong, when holiness is reduced simply to a list of things that we do not do, 
And I have to say, growing up, it was never a list of things that I ought to do, simply a list of things that I ought not to do. When that becomes what we are about, then rather than being attractive as it should be, it repels. Now let me be very clear. I'm not suggesting for a moment that holiness does not result in prohibited behavior. It absolutely does. Let's be clear about that. But I'm wanting to suggest that the transforming power of God will address those prohibited behaviors far more effectively than a judgmental set of humans providing a list of all the things that we ought not to do. Holiness is rooted in the optimism of grace. Holiness is a way of seeing the world and all within it as pregnant with the possibilities of grace, despite our brokenness, our sinfulness, and our dysfunction. I love cars, by the way. Anybody else in the room? Well, let me do my best to speed along from the car analogy there. But one of the things that's wonderful is when you get to a very dirty car and you decide to clean it. And when you look at it, it's, it's filthy. But when you do your work of cleaning it, after a while, it begins to become reflective. It changes. The idea of holiness is to be able to see anything as potentially transformable so that it reflects the glory and the goodness of God. That means there are no no-go areas. Anything or anyone, no matter how tarnished, no matter how broken, has the capacity to reflect something of the goodness and glory of God. Why? For it is created by that God. So let me come to a close on this element of problematic. I want to say that holiness is distinctly problematic. For many of us, it's a Mufasa word. It has so many negative connotations that sometimes when we hear the word, it's not something that makes us excited. Talk of holiness easily makes us feel inadequate. And for others, holiness is just too slippery a word. Its meaning is unclear, it's too complex to wrap our minds around. And therefore, for so many of us, holiness is distinctly problematic. And yet holiness is also a liberating truth. We are holy not because of what we do or don't do, but rather because of what God in grace has already done in Christ Jesus and by his Holy Spirit. Human holiness, therefore, is at best simply a reflection of God's holiness. And therefore to be holy is not to achieve sinless perfection, but it is to seek more faithfully to be a reflection of Christ Jesus. And that is where I think we begin to see that holiness is not only distinctly problematic, but it is also distinctly precious. Now when we think of holiness, one key scriptural passage for me is Leviticus chapter 19 verse 2. That passage is repeated in the New Testament in 1 Peter 1 verse 16. And it's a very simple passage which says this. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. In exploring the idea of holiness as distinctly precious, I want to ask three questions. One, why is holiness important? Two, how is holiness attained? And three, 
what does holiness look like? So let's start with the first of those questions. Why is holiness important? Well, the concern with holiness is something we find across the pages of the Bible. In the Old Testament, for example, we find this concern expressed in the sacrificial system and the purification laws. For example, the food rules in Leviticus 11, things you should eat and things you shouldn't eat, or the purity rules in Leviticus 12 to 16, various types of washings and so on. If you get into the Old Testament prophets, Elijah, Isaiah, Amos, Ezekiel, for example, we find a consistent call to holiness but here, this is a reminder that holiness requires justice. And that's a really important thing. In other words, holiness isn't just about my personal relationship with God, but it's about our communities. Are they just places, safe spaces? The book of Job, for example, is very much concerned with the question of holiness. It's concerned with the question of Job's holiness. That is why all the terrible things happen to Job to check to see whether he really is holy or whether he's simply buttering God up to get what he can get. But there's also a subtext in the book of Job which really asks the question, how do we know that God is holy? For what kind of God does that to his friends? So there's a really interesting thing and I suggest that the book of Job, the key question in the whole of it is the question of holiness. The Psalms begin and end with holiness. Psalm 1 begins, Blessed is the one who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. It's a description of what holiness looks like. Psalm 150 ends with praise in the sanctuary of the Holy One. In the New Testament, the concern with holiness continues. We find it in the ministry of Jesus in the Gospels, in the Sermon on the Mount, and not least in the declaration in Matthew 5:48, which is very similar to the text we heard from Leviticus 2. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Quite a terrifying phrase. It's not too dissimilar from be holy, for I am holy. In the New Testament epistles, whether of Paul in Thessalonians and Romans, or in 1 Peter, or indeed the anonymous writer to the Hebrews, we find a repeated and consistent call to holiness. So it seems pretty clear to me at least that scripture is very concerned with the question of holiness. And yet the question remains, but why is it important? I want to suggest that holiness is important because it is important to God. And holiness is important to God, not simply because God likes that kind of thing. You know, some people like gardening and maybe God likes holiness. That's not what we're talking about. Holiness is important to God because it is the very heart of who God is. Hear those words of Leviticus 19 verse 2 once again. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Now when God says, I am holy, it's not like me saying, I am tall, dark, and handsome. That may be true, it might not. We can have a debate later on. But whether or not it is, that's simply one facet of my character. When God says, I am holy, it's much closer to what I'm trying to say when I meet someone, and I say, hello, I'm Calvin. Because when I tell you that, I'm not simply trying to tell you a fact about me. The name that's written on my birth certificate. I'm actually trying to tell you who I am. Therefore, when God says, I'm holy, and therefore you shall be holy, God is not trying to tell us a fact about God. Holiness is not simply one of God's characteristics. It is who God is. 
Holiness is the quintessential nature of God. It's the core of God's very being. Anglican priest and Old Testament scholar Walter Mobley, he argues, holy is tantamount to a definition of the nature of God. Chris Wright, another Old Testament scholar, he says, holiness is the biblical shorthand for the very essence of God. And John Hartley, a, 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 a scholar with a focus on Leviticus, he puts it this way. Holiness is not one attribute of God among others. Rather, it is the quintessential nature of God. And he goes on to say, in the entire universe, God alone is intrinsically holy. And what he means by intrinsically holy is this, that God's holiness doesn't come from somewhere else. It comes from God's very being. And this, I suggest, is the primary reason why holiness is important. It's important because it's important to God, and it's important to God because it is who God is. So when we seek after holiness, we are seeking far more than to be lovely people. We're seeking far more than to be committed to justice, as important as that is. We're seeking far more than to be people of integrity, as important as that is. Rather, much more importantly, when we seek after holiness, we seek nothing less than to become like God. So having sketched why holiness is important, we need to ask the second question, the how question. And if you're anything like me, that's really the question you're after. Am I right? How? How is holiness attained? How does one become holy? Well, this is a paradox. Because on the one hand, holiness is entirely beyond our reach. I hope that makes you feel liberated because you can now relax. It's beyond your reach. You can't do it. If holiness is intrinsically who God is, we can't do it. We can't become holy any more than we can become God. Apart from the grace of God, of course. Humans can only be holy if God, the Holy One, makes us holy. A great scriptural example of this is the story of Moses at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. If you're familiar with the story, you might know Moses is somewhere on a mountain looking after sheep and he sees a bush on fire. Not that big a deal. But this particular bush is burning but not being consumed. And so he goes over to, ex to explore. And as he draws near, he hears the audible voice of God saying, Moses, come no closer, take off your shoes, because the ground on which you are standing is holy ground. Now, how did that ground become holy? Presumably, it wasn't holy yesterday. It's holy now. How did that ground become holy? I'm not sure, but I suspect it is not because the ground had said a sinner's prayer. That ground did not confess its faith in Jesus. That ground did not seek after holiness. That ground became holy simply because God was present there in a concentrated way. And God's holiness, as it were, infected the ground. Something of God rubbed off on that place, and therefore that place became holy. In fact, that is broadly how we find holy places in our world, where the places where there is something of encounter with God become holy places. 
I used to live in Durham and one of the places I used to love to go to is Holy Island in Lindisfarne. What makes Holy Island holy? Well, it's because of the spiritual activity that took there for a long time. It was a place of encounter with God. Something of God rubbed off on that place and therefore that place has become holy. Similarly, you and I can only be holy if God makes us so. If something of God's holiness rubs off onto us. Does that make sense? And so if there is only a single source of holiness in the universe, if we want to be holy, there's only one thing we can do. We can't seek after holiness, we will fail. But we know a guy. We can seek after the one who is himself holy. And he can make us so. Because you see, holiness is a work of grace. If I am holy because I've worked really hard at it and I've prayed really hard and I've done all the right things, that's not grace, that's works. But if God does it for me, doing what is impossible for me to do, that is grace. And yet, I did say it was a paradox. Holiness is not merely a passive pursuit. So we do not become holy by standing around and saying, okay now, Lord, I'm ready for it, hit me with it. Hit me with your holiness. That, that's not the way it works. It's not merely a passive pursuit. Going back to Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2, it's a directive. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. That's exactly the same language that's used in the Ten Commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, is the way Jesus puts it. But if you go to Exodus 20, you shall not kill, you shall not murder, you shall have no other gods before me. It's exactly the same language. It is a directive. We are instructed to be holy. And this indicates that holiness is not only about God's gracious gift. It's also about our obedience. And that is the paradox of holiness. We cannot become holy unless God shares God's holiness with us. Unless God makes us holy by his grace in Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And yet, we will never become holy apart from striving and seeking and working and pursuing the Holy One. Do you see the paradox? We can't become holy by our own efforts. But if you make no effort, I can assure you, you'll never become holy. That's the paradox. Leviticus 19, which has this declaration, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy, does not simply direct and instruct Israel to be holy. But it also gives clear indications of what that might involve. So, for example, in Leviticus 19, verse 9, we're told, when you reap the harvest, you should leave gleanings for the poor and for the alien. Verse 13, don't defraud your neighbor or keep for yourself a laborer's wages until the morning. Verse 14 gives instructions about treating those living with a disability with dignity. Verse 20 offers protection for female slaves from exploitation by their masters. And this is long before the Me Too movement. And indeed, if you read carefully, you will find that most of Leviticus 19 captures the Ten Commandments of Exodus chapter 20. It's also in Leviticus that we find the raw material for Jesus' declaration that we should love our neighbors as ourselves. We find that in verse 18. And I suggest that Jesus must have been a big reader of Leviticus. 
when Jesus taught in Matthew 5 that it's not enough that we do not commit murder. We also should not hate. Well, that's not an original idea. We find it here in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 17. When Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10 as a way of saying we should love our neighbors and that includes the alien and the stranger, well, that's not an original idea. You find instructions to love the alien and the stranger here in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 34. In other words, Leviticus is not simply satisfied to give instructions, you shall be holy. It also gives clear indications of what that looks like, of expected behavior. And this is where we come to the fact that holiness may not be primarily about prohibited behavior, but there is definitely prohibited behavior. Holiness has implications for our behavior. In other words, holiness for the folk reading Leviticus was not an abstract or theoretical or doctrinal concept. It was about a lived experience of the grace of God as a community. And if you've ever grown up in a large family, I'm one of five children, you'll know how important it is for there to be some rules to govern people living together or else very bad things happen. Or if you've ever worked in a school, as I have, you need some form of rules or else chaos reigns. So how is holiness attained? How do we become holy? That's the million dollar question. And if I had a great book that said seven steps to guarantee holiness, it would be a bestseller. But there are no seven steps. Holiness is a paradox. On the one hand, it is a gift bestowed by God's grace in Christ and by the power of the Spirit. And yet, on the other, it is never attained without obedience to God's word. So it's not coincidental that Leviticus 19.2 says, you shall be holy. And then the rest of the chapter gives detailed, practical instructions for how communities that are shaped by holiness should live. Which brings us nicely to the third question. What does holiness look like? Because unless we have some idea what holiness looks like, how do we recognize it when we see it? And how do we know whether we have attained it or whether we've got a much, much further to go? So what does holiness look like? Well, the answer to this question is both very simple and very complex. Let's start with a simple one. If it is true that holiness is God's quintessential nature, the very core of who God is, then the answer to the question, what does holiness look like, is a very simple one. Well, it looks like God. To be holy is to be godly. To be holy is to value what God values, to speak as God would speak, to reflect God's very being. Holiness is to be distinct, to be a reflection of God's goodness and glory in the world. And let me just say, I think we need more people who do that, who reflect something of God's goodness and glory in the world. By the way, have you ever met a person that you think is holy? They may not think they're holy. But when you encounter them, you encounter God. If you have ever encountered a person like that, be grateful. There aren't many of them. But that is what holiness is like. A great example of this in Scripture is the story of Moses in the presence of God in Mount Sinai on, in Exodus chapter 34, verse 29 and following. That story is the story of Moses receiving the tablets of the Ten Commandments. And so he's on this mountain, it's a great moment, he's receiving these tablets, he's been praying for a while, he's been in the presence of God. 
And as he comes down the mountain with these tablets of stone with the Ten Commandments inscribed on them, his face had become irradiated with the glory of God. I don't know whether Moses was aware of it, but here he is coming down the mountain and his face looks like he's been in Chernobyl or something because it's, it's glowing. That's what holiness is like. That's what it looks like. That as we spend time with God, something of who God is shines out from us. And we may or may not be aware that it's happening. But this is where it moves from simplicity to complexity. Because simply to say that holiness looks like God is not really helpful. Because we then have to ask, and what does God look like? Well, we are not clueless on this front. For God sent Christ Jesus to reveal who God is and to reveal what holiness looks like. Not only that, by his spirit, he not only reveals God, but empowers us to become like him. To be holy is to become like Christ, the ultimate example of human holiness. And Jesus demonstrates that to be holy is in many ways very simple. To love your neighbors as yourselves, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your strength, your mind. To give ourselves completely over to God, even if it leads to suffering and death. I said it was simple, not easy. What does holiness look like? Holiness looks like God. It looks like Christ. In human experience of holiness, then, we have a foretaste of the heavenly banquet. We have a glimpse of the future, a deposit of what is to come, the first fruits of the end of the age. And this perhaps helps to explain the now and not yet nature of holiness. If you have grown things in a, well, wherever it is you grow them, an allotment or in your greenhouse, you'll know that first fruits are indeed real fruit, but they're not the whole of the harvest. A deposit, that is hard cash in hand, but it's only a fraction of the due sum. A foretaste and a glimpse are genuine experiences of tasting and seeing, but they are inevitably frustrating in their fleetingness. And so it is with human experience of holiness through the Spirit. Holiness is of this age, by God's grace, but it is primarily of the age to come. And so when we seek after holy, when we pray to God, asking him to transform us and to make us like him, to enable us to reflect his glory and goodness in the world, what we are actually seeking to experience is the age to come breaking into our present age. I suggest we need more and more of that. So let me finish. Leviticus 19.2 declares, As he who has called you is holy, you shall be holy. That's not an optional extra for hardcore Christians or for advanced level Christians. It's a call to a holy life for all who are the people of God. If it is true that holiness is the heart of who God is, then it must also be the heart of who we are as the people of God. We recognize that holiness is complex, not least because we know there is nothing that we can do to make ourselves more holy, because holiness is properly something that belongs to God alone. People or spaces or objects or times which are described as holy are only so-called because they in some way relate to the Holy One and have been impacted by the Holy One. 
and yet at the same time, despite knowing that there is nothing that we can do to make ourselves any more holy than we are right now, we also know that holiness is never attained without effort, without discipline, without obedience. And indeed, Jesus himself reminded us, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness shall be filled. And therefore, holiness remains in part a mystery. Often we do not recognize ourselves to be holy, but others can see that in us. When Moses' face was aglow, I don't know if he could see it. They hadn't invented mirrors back then, but you better believe everyone around him could see it. And one of the reasons for this is that the more we grow in grace and holiness, the more we become aware of our sinfulness and of our ongoing need to be transformed by God's grace. I don't know if I'm holy enough to know this yet, but I suspect the more holy we become, the less holy we feel. Because the closer we draw to God, the more we're able to see, like Isaiah, our sinfulness. So let's end once again with those words from Leviticus. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And this is why holiness is not merely problematic. It's also precious. For holiness is who God is, and it therefore must be who we are as the people of God. So let us therefore dare to ask God to sanctify us by the power of the Spirit, so that we together truly might be holy as God is holy. Thank you very much. I believe we have just under 20 minutes for some questions. Yes, we, exactly. We have uh, yes, 15 or 20 minutes. Uh, some of us will have questions immediately. Others will be uh, wanting to formulate those questions. But we've got about 15 minutes. And if you could be as concise as possible with your questions, that would be really helpful. Thank you. One question from the back. In essence, the question I'm going to answer from that <laughs> is, do I agree with the definition that holiness is uh, to be separated to God and requires moral uprightness and the secondary element is uh, the sense to which preachers need to preach that more faithfully. Now, let me start with the second because that's easy. Absolutely. Preachers need to preach uh, holiness much more uh, faithfully and emphatically. Uh, part of the difficulty with that is number one is hard to do but number two I think if you are a good preacher you are sometimes afraid to preach on holiness because you know who you are and you know that you are not necessarily the best example of holiness and so sometimes we are, we are a bit hesitant. But the reality is we don't preach holiness because we are holy. We preach holiness because God is holy uh, and because that is what we are aspiring uh, to be. Uh, with regard to the first element of the question, uh, do I agree with your definition? Yes, but I don't think it goes far enough. Uh, because what I want to say is holiness is not only about being separated uh, to God and that it certainly has uh, moral implications. But I want to say it's something much more than that. It's about who God is. And therefore, holiness is not something simply that we do. Holiness is something that we become. It's an identity, and it is that identity which shapes uh, the behavior. So you're absolutely right, but I want to say a little more than that. But thank you very much. Do we have any other uh, questions? Okay. So is holiness uh, metamorphosis, a bit like a butterfly and you emerge? Or is it a more abstract concept and if it is metamorphosis, what's the, what's the fuel source, the food source that enables us? That's a brilliant image, by the way. Uh, what I want to say is it is both of those things. So it is absolutely a metamorphosis, and I really like that image of becoming. 
Uh, and if you know anything about um, larva becoming butterflies, uh, that involves a great deal of struggle. Uh, and so it is with holiness. It's not this beatific experience where we go off and pray in a corner and something beautiful happens to us. Uh, quite often we work this out in struggle. And I think the book of Job, as I mentioned, is a book very much concerned with holiness, and yet that is a book that is deeply about struggle and trauma and so on. So quite often we are working this out in, in pain. Uh, the abstract element is really to say that this isn't just about a personal struggle, for this is engaging with something that is outside of us, for holiness is not ours. Holiness is who God is. So this, this is where the analogy begins to break down a little, for uh, the metamorphosis isn't simply about a larva becoming a butterfly, because that is, what, that is how uh, butterflies are designed. But holiness is deeply unnatural for us. We are not designed quite in that way. Uh, we have to become that which God intends for us, and that, for me, is the, the element. With regard to the question of what is the food stuff, that's really nice image. What I want to say is uh, certainly that for me has to be something to do with obedience. So yes, that will involve engaging with scripture, but much more than that, it also uh, requires us to be who we should be, the people of God, reflecting something of God's glory and goodness in the world. And one of the challenges for Christians is we're very good at, at reflecting God's glory and goodness to each other. But really where it needs to be seen, and of course in a place like this, which is a beacon in the world, is for God's glory and goodness to be seen in us, where we work. And so I spend a lot of my time in churches with Christians, you lot, who have real lives and real jobs. That's really where holiness needs to be seen in the workplaces, so that you're talking about a whole life of discipleship. So thank you so very much for that question. Yes, so how do we change the, the habit of avoiding preaching on holiness? Well, what you do is you write a book on it, you call it more distinct. <laughs> you really hope that St. Paul's Cathedral invites you to address the forum. You talk to some really influential people and hope that they go back to their local churches and say to their vicars and priests and pastors, why are you not preaching about holiness? But, but actually, it's, it's a conversation we need to have, and it's a really difficult one. But I do believe it might be an idea whose time has come. I think 10 years ago, it would have been much more difficult to have a conversation about holiness. I think there is now a, a recognition that there is something missing uh, and a recognition too that whenever I preach about holiness, I'm not preaching as someone who has arrived. I'm preaching as someone who is very much on the journey with you uh, and someone who is seeking to be transformed by God's holiness. Uh, there was one question at the back. If I've understood that correctly, there are two elements to, to what you've asked. One is, uh, do holy people win? Because the ones who seem to be winning aren't all that holy. And secondly, uh, what are the downsides of viewing the world in binary terms, winners and losers? Uh, let's start with the, the first of those. Uh, clearly, that's not a new thing. The idea that, or the fear that the people who seem to be winning are not the ones who are righteous. You can find that in the Psalms. Uh, and of course, many of us have thought that. We think, why is this person doing so well when their lives are so terrible, when we are trying to be uh, like God, and it doesn't necessarily work out well for us. One of the things that Christianity has offered for us is a horizon that's longer than simply life itself. Uh, that's why there are ideas of heaven, etc. To say we don't actually know who's won when we die. Actually, if you want to know who's won, we need to go into the afterlife. That's really uh, when you know. Uh, and that gives us a perspective that's a little longer and might help us to uh, change our perspective. 
which is why Jesus tells the story of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke chapter 16. Uh, looking on from earth, it looks like the rich man has won. Uh, but when you go beyond death, it's very clear who has won in the long term, and it's not the rich man. It is Lazarus who was poor in this life, but is cradled in the arms of uh, Father Abraham, I think. Um, but that's not simply to say it'll be pie in the sky when you die, uh, because it's also a way of saying that holiness is for our deepest and most joyful good. The idea that we are most fully alive and most fully human when we reflect something of who God is. And for me, holiness, therefore, is a challenge to our value structure and our value system. What's really important? Is it celebrity and fame and money uh, and success? Or is it actually becoming more fully who I am meant to be? Uh, and I want to suggest there's no way you can put a value on that, someone who is fully actualized. And it seems to me that is what uh, holiness is about. Uh, the question of win-lose becomes really important. Because one of the things I haven't talked very much about today, uh, but which is in the book, is a reminder that holiness is actually a corporate idea primarily. So it's very easy for us to think about holiness in terms of my relationship with God. But the idea of holiness is really a corporate concept, that you have a people and communities that are shaped by holiness, and therefore there is justice and peace and well-being and flourishing. And it seems to me that element is really important, and therefore you're not interested in win-lose. You're interested in win-win. And therefore, that's why you find things like Leviticus 19 saying, for those who have land and you reap a harvest, you don't glean it to the very edge. You make sure that there is something left on that land so that those who are poor also have a share. Finding a way of um, revisiting that in contemporary culture to say, how do we make sure that even those who are less fortunate still have a place at the table? That is a holiness question. And that's something that we need to engage with uh, much more uh, fully. There was one other hand over here. The short answer is, I don't know. But that might be an interesting thing to do for a future forum. I'll happily come back, as long as the imam and the rabbi didn't make me look too bad. Let me say, I certainly can't speak with too much insight into what an Islamic uh, view of holiness might be. Uh, I would be surprised if a Jewish view of holiness weren't very similar because much of this we are reading exactly the same text. Um, so yes, my answer is I don't know, but it certainly would be a fascinating uh, thing to explore because we, are, we do have a shared uh, tradition. So thank you, thank you for that. There was another hand over here, and I think that might be the last couple of oh, questions. Question. Oh, is holiness viewed as similar to enlightenment? Um, that's a really great question. I want to say yes, but it does not go far enough. Uh, enlightenment is very much uh, certainly in the way I think about it, very much about the mind, uh, very much about thinking right, um, and therefore your behavior changes. Uh, it seems to me holiness is much more than simply being enlightened. It's about being transformed, number one. Uh, number two, uh, enlightenment is something that I can reach on my own. Given the mental faculties that I have with a certain amount of learning, I can become enlightened. Whereas for holiness, no matter how you try, it is beyond your reach, for holiness is not ultimately ours. That, I think, yes. Uh, because, uh, as I say, um, this is about struggle. So the, the image of lava becoming butterfly, uh, 
it involves struggle. It's, it's rooted in everyday life. We're working out what it means to reflect God's goodness and glory in the world. Uh, and therefore, yes, there will be steps and ways on that, and some of us are further along the journey than others. Uh, but ultimately, um, I really want to remind us that holiness is not something that we can do. Uh, it is something that only God can do. <laughs> can we understand what holiness isn't before we then understand what holiness is? And uh, do we need to engage with complexity? Uh, engage better with complexity. Can I answer that second bit first? I think one of the really important things in uh, the work of the church and certainly in the study of theology is to move into complexity. Uh, we really like simplicity, but the problem with simplicity is some things are simply not simple. Uh, Brexit, it's not that simple. <laughs> and so if you package it into sound bites and tweets, uh, 140 characters, it becomes something we can talk about, but actually we need to spend more time complexifying things because we will never fully understand them. So I think you're absolutely right there to say we must engage with complexity. As for whether we should understand what holiness isn't before we can understand what holiness is, I think that's right. But we probably have figured that out instinctively. Uh, children don't need to learn what the wrong thing is. They, they figure that out pretty instinctively. So I think we might be actually further along than you, than you suggest. Anyway, I think we are out of time. So thank you so very much for being a, a brilliant audience and thank you for joining us today. Calvin, thank you very much indeed for being uh, with us here today. We're immensely grateful for the time uh, you've given from the book that you have written. Uh, I always remember uh, hearing a preacher talk about the subject of uh, holiness and he referred to that passage from Isaiah that you referred to, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And he was really wrestling with what other words we could try to understand. And he thought separate, separate, separate is the Lord God Almighty. It doesn't quite do it for him. Uh, you've given us the challenge of distinctive, distinctive, distinctive is the Lord God Almighty. But actually, of course, as you were saying, uh, holiness is not a characteristic. It is the very nature and the very essence of God. And so you've given us much to feast on. Thank you very much indeed again. Uh, our next Sunday forum is on Sunday the 6th of October when our Chancellor, Dr uh, Paula Gooder, will explore how we uh, might engage with the theology of St Paul through the book Phoebe, uh, which she has just written. How many of you have come across that book? A few of you already. Uh, again, copies of that book are sold in the Cathedral Bookshop as well, but she'll be here this time uh, next month on Sunday the 6th of October. Uh, our next free evening event is on Thursday the 3rd of October when we welcome Bishop Michael Curry, uh, who is coming to St Paul's to explore God's passionate dream for humanity. The event's already looking very popular, so uh, please do book your places uh, if you haven't already, uh, and I think there are opportunities to do that on leaflets that you have uh, in front of you. Uh, well, we do hope that you'll join us again. Copies of Calvin's book are here uh, and to be signed. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much, Calvin. Uh, and thank you for coming and attending our event today. Thank you.